0: Welcome
1: back to Civil Action.
0: That's right. Civil Action.
1: Yeah. And you're Brian Kavita. I am. And I'm Sean Kernikian. Hi, Sean. And I work for you. You do. And that's probably the only reason you're actually here. Yep. Hey, we do this on a weekly basis where we review recent cases that have come down from the California Court of Appeal, the California Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit, the United States Supreme Court. Sean still doesn't know what the United States Supreme Court is. We're going to explain it to him one of these days. We'll spend an entire episode one day, Sean explaining what the United States Supreme Court is. And the is.
0: audience still doesn't find that joke funny.
1: Yes, they do. <laughs> they don't. My mother called they me and not. she said she finds it very, very funny.
0: You can find us online at kbklawyers.com. We also put on a monthly seminar that you can check out for free. You get free CLE credit, free wine, free
1: food. Uh, come for the wine, stay for the CLE. Um, but, you sound so uninspired right? about your own seminars today, yeah, Sean. Yeah, So this is fun, and we get to have fun because we get to talk about cases that have come down recently. So much fun. From the courts. So much fun. Did I already mention that they're from the California right. Supreme Court? And the I don't court know the what the
0: Supreme Court is. Yeah, and, and if you haven't tuned out by now, we have a great, great episode today. What um, are we talking about today? We're talking about four cases, so it's uh, uh, short and sweet. First one is a Ninth Circuit case about the joint employer doctrine uh, against a small company called McDonald's.
1: I like McDonald's.
0: Yeah, it's a little startup. Um, And then we're going to do a case about class cert in a misclassification case and the requirements there. Then we're going to talk about um, uh, bad clients that leave bad reviews on social media sites like Yelp and why it's very difficult. For lawyers. For lawyers, yeah. Why it's difficult to do anything about it. Um, and really it's about, it's an anti-slap case. And lastly, we're going to talk about a terrible set of facts and punitive damages and proving up someone's net worth or financial condition when you're seeking punitive damages.
1: Okay. So our first case today is Salazar versus McDonald's corporation. You know what they have at McDonald's? French fries. They do.
0: Yeah, they the do best. And, and- they used to be better because they used to use beef tallow to make it. You know, what that is like beef oh, fat. Do. Yeah. They don't use it anymore. There is a place that I'm not going to announce on the air that uses beef tallow. And uh, if you contact me, I'll, I'll let you in on the secret. But McDonald's, yeah, still great though. Is it vegetarian? Oh, it's not vegetarian when they use beef tallow.
1: So it's vegan though.
0: No, it's de- it's de- if it's not vegetarian, it's definitely not vegan.
1: So this is a case in the Ninth Circuit. It came out of the Northern District of California, and the core issue in this case, just to sum up very quickly, is that not only was there a lawsuit against McDonald's for wage and hour violations for their uh, employees who are you know minimum wage people working at these various restaurants, but it was really against one franchisee. The franchisee owned boy, I think a number of McDonald's. Um, in California, Yeah, right? I'm
0: not sure exactly how many locations, but I do know that the class was approximately 1,400 people, so you're talking about a decent amount of locations. That could
1: be the turnover in one McDonald's any given school year. I
0: mean, that that is true. I don't think it was hundreds of locations. I think it was, uh, you know...
1: It's actually eight locations. Eight and locations the in issue, the Bay Area, yeah. What the issue in this case is is really the dual employer or the joint employer doctrine, which means that it can be, you can be getting your paycheck from one employer, but really two people could be employing you. This is an important issue. I tell people consistently, there are 50 states in the United States, 49 of them have one type of law when it comes to employment, and then there's California. And California is very pro-employee, and this is, an example of the doctrine is the joint employment doctrine.
0: Here the plaintiff sued so as Brian said not just McDonald's but the franchise uh, franchisee the franchise or franchisor franchisor is McDonald's and the franchisee is the person that the the here it's Haynes uh the family Haynes, Haynes family, family limited partnership that owned the uh eight locations
1: so but but Haynes settles out they yep. settle out of the case and plaintiff and, wants to proceed against Mcdonald's the right big, the big fish and they're, they're one of the main core issues in this case is that the reason these employees were cheated was because McDonald's, like everything in a franchise, had obligated them to use a particular software to account for. Employment and and wages and employee taxes, employer taxes, and all that kind of stuff. And so based upon that, the uh, plaintiffs were trying to claim that the franchisee uh, was relying on the franchisor and that they were in a joint employee relationship.
0: Yeah, there, there's other facts too. You know, the, uh, McDonald's, the franchisor, required the franchisee to have all of its employees you know, wear a certain uniform, use a certain point of sale system, to follow certain procedures. They made um, the uh, managers go to Hamburger University,
1: which I'd like I, to go there.
0: Yeah, me too. Not I'd not like to, to go there. Not I think to study. I, we could probably get scholarships to go to Hamburger University. I'm going so, to get my PhD
1: from there. So enough of the McDonald's jokes. In fact, we're, at some point we're just going to stop this podcast and go to McDonald's, right? Yeah. So the what the court. I didn't like this decision. Sometimes I don't like decisions because I don't like the the outcome, but I agree with the legal reasoning. Sometimes I I don't like them because I don't agree with their reasoning. In this one I do not agree with their reasoning. The first thing the court looked at, the Ninth Circuit looked at. Incidentally, this is kind of a two and a half. To, to half uh, um, you know, opinion because there was a concurrence and a dissent. the
0: dissent. The chief judge, I think, of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal issued a concurrence and dissent. Uh, but anyway, they start out by looking at what the joint employment doctrine is. And this is important to know. This comes from a case called Martinez, a 2010 California case because we're talking about California law.
1: California Supreme Court.
0: The California Supreme Court case, very important case. And it says that uh, a joint employee – you have a joint employee relationship when um, – The other person, the other entity you're contending is the joint employer, can exercise control over the wages, hours, or working conditions, or, B, to suffer or permit to work, or, C, to engage, thereby creating a common law
1: relationship. So the first thing they look at is the control and was there control? And they said McDonald's here was not the employer. They didn't control under the definition in Martinez, because they didn't control over the wages, hours, or working condition. The only problem with that is that there was this comprehensive program, computer program, which did actually control. The wages that the and it had get. some
0: implication on their wages and working conditions. And I think one of the examples that we were talking about before we got on the air was, you know, their software didn't account for someone working an overnight shift. So at midnight, it would just start a new day and it would it would look like somebody had worked two separate shifts. Meanwhile, they might have actually been working overtime if they worked past. Ten or midnight. twelve
1: hours, right. but it looks like they worked five or six hours in each and then stopped shift. and then started again. Yeah. And so then they looked at the suffer or permit, and that's a very specific definition under California law. That goes back to a number of cases. I think it even goes back to sort of the early 1900s where that phrase was used about sufferer permit.
0: Yeah, and that's that's actually uh, – the sufferer permit to work is something that is discussed in – at length in the dynamex case which is a very employment important employment uh and misclassification right and
1: one of the reasons i disagreed with this case is they were dismissive of dynamex which is dynamex is a case which says when somebody is an independent contractor versus an employee and the, the employment laws apply and they said but there's no allegation here that this person these people were independent contractors No, but the analogy in Dynamex is that you can be an employer of somebody if you exercise control over them, and I think Dynamex is far-reaching, and I think they were too dismissive of that decision in this case. So then then they went to the common law. Common law
0: law definition of employer, and the principal test there is whether the person to whom the service is rendered has the right to control the manner and means of accomplishing the result desired. And the argument here is that McDonald's – it doesn't really control the manner in which
1: the the work is being done. But what the what the opinion says is, well, in short, and I'm quoting now, arguably there is evidence suggesting that McDonald's was aware that the franchisee was violating California's wage and hour laws. And they say, but that's not enough. They dismissed it. And then they dismiss the negligence claim saying that McDonald's was liable because they wrote this software and they forced them to use the software and they knew it and they dismiss that. And then they uh, then they throw out the Paga claims against McDonald's under the same theory. So then we turn to the dissent, the concurrence and dissent.
0: Yeah, and uh, that's by Chief Judge Thomas, and it, he he goes into looking at the suffer or work to permit definition, and he says this falls under that because it doesn't really Martinez doesn't compel an opposite conclusion here. Martinez doesn't say that. Well, this,
1: they said that it shouldn't have been. He said it shouldn't have been thrown out on an MSJ.
0: Right, because there is a there's, – there's questions of fact. There's a material dispute over whether or not um, what these people do fall under the definition of suffer or work to permit as it pertains to McDonald's, the franchisor. Um, All right. So yeah, interesting decision. So I thought
1: this was wrongly decided. I wonder if this case climbs its way up in the California Supreme Court and under similar facts, if there's a completely different result. There might be. I'm not going to say there absolutely will be, but there might be. I think there's at least enough there – that I wouldn't have thrown this case out on on summary judgment, it, but then no one has appointed me to the Ninth Circuit,
0: right? And they shouldn't. Won't. That would that would be highly worse. unlikely. That would you would need a stable a stable genius to do that. So that might happen though in, in this day and age. So
1: let's uh, go to the next case. So
0: Martinez versus Sal, uh, sorry Salazar versus McDonald's Corp. A good primer on uh, California. Nope, that's the wall. case we just talked about. I let's go I to wanted the next to case. wrap it up. I wanted to close the loop little, on that.
1: Put a little bow on it. Okay.
0: Next case is. Uh, Ron Motori versus Action Property Management coming from the second appellate district. Um, this involves a Class action against a property management company that gets often retained by kind of nonprofit, but not like charities, but nonprofit HOAs and things like that.
1: HOA, condo
0: associations, large
1: buildings, yep. condo associations. And they provide this is very typical. They provide this kind of work.
0: Yep. They assign uh, to these properties people like managers, and they call them community managers, portfolio managers, general managers, on-site managers, and these are really all the same thing. This is a deliberate attempt to make it look like these are different jobs, and they um, they make these people exempt uh, from labor laws, meaning that they don't need to get breaks and overtime, overtime and all and, those types right. of requirements. So it's kind of your traditional uh, misclassification case that's, that we often see in other contexts.
1: So they try to certify this case, and it is certification is denied on two fundamental grounds. One is there's no commonality about the jobs. These are different jobs. And the second is That they are, um, that the trial plan that the plaintiffs came up with in this case was unworkable. And that's where, in a class action, you have to submit a plan to the court to say, Here's how we're going to put this case on, or here's yep. how we're going to try this case. And
0: we see this every day now. We're seeing more and more of these cases. Yeah, and this kind
1: of came out of nowhere.
0: The defendants do like a really good job. I mean, to their credit, they do a really good job. But I don't think it's a fair way of arguing these cases. Of coming in and saying, "Look, there's an individualized inquiry. Everyone does something different." In this case, for example, they provided a 30 declarations in their opposition. Seen it happen. from class members saying, "Yeah, sometimes I do this, sometimes I do that, sometimes I do and this." And really,
1: it wasn't. It wasn't a question of whether or not these people were or were not misclassified. It was that some might have been misclassified, some weren't misclassified, some really were managerial, some had all the discretion of a manager, and that you can't possibly certify this class because out of all the members of the class, you have some who are, some who aren't, and it's going to require individual um, findings on each one.
0: Yeah. So based on that, the trial court uh, effectively denies class certification, and the court of appeal looks at it. and And really, there's no earth shattering new law that develops from this case, but they uh, they really affirm the trial court's order, and they don't really disagree with the standards that are being used there. So, you know, I, I think it's a bad outcome. I think this whole argument of individualized inquiry is a I don't want to say it's a cop-out for the courts. I think it's an unfair argument that defendants are making. And until there's some sort of legislative change as to how we get classification, I think we're going to see this Well, what they
1: said, they deferred a lot to the trial court. The court of appeal obviously upheld the decision of the trial court. They deferred a lot. They said it's substantial evidence test. There's substantial evidence here that the properties are varying in size. There were some with only 23 units and some with 2,892 units, um, that there was plenty of evidence here that there were people who might have been misclassified, people who weren't misclassified. The trial plan was inadequate. And I really don't like this because you start taking this apart and you start to see sort of the end of class actions when you start getting into all these individual issues. Yes, there are going to be individual issues in class actions, but for the most part, can you look at these and figure out a way... To make a quick determination about whether somebody's a manager or not a manager
0: yeah that's that should be the inquiry, but again, the more uh, these defendants have they 've gotten kind of smart here or they're gaming they're the very system. smart yeah. I think they
1: 're very smart, I think they go to little seminars, probably in bunkers in South Dakota someplace. And they sit or there in mad geniuses. maybe just a hotel mad in California. Yeah. No, no. No, it's mad in bunkers? Bunkers. Okay. Okay. Like, like,
0: maybe Brian should get his own bunker and, and conduct mad genius uh, seminars.
1: Well, I think the plaintiff's bar should get there. It should get mad. And we should get mad when this kind of stuff right. happens. Okay. Okay.
0: Right. Okay. Next we have a case from the 2nd Appellate District. This is Abir cohen Trazon Salo LLP versus Arta Lahiji. Um, this involves a – so the, the the facts are kind of um, – this is less of like an interesting legal uh, argument here or legal news, but
1: it's more of a cautionary tale for lawyers. Right. Um, it's, it's, it, it, and it also comes out of an, the anti slap statute, which stands for what, Sean?
0: A strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation.
1: And what does it basically mean? What is public participation?
0: Um, For example, filing a lawsuit. Public participation, engaging in things like free speech or engaging in your constitutionally protected right to use the system, use the legal process. So whenever someone gets sued for um, engaging in free speech or filing a lawsuit or, or making some sort of claim that's protected by the Constitution, you can anti-slap that lawsuit and basically say that this is a lawsuit against... Uh, my ability to participate in uh,
1: con- and, and particularly activities. a strategic lawsuit. So that's the history yep. of it. We don't normally cover these kinds of um, cases here because there are so many of them and they're so varied. But I thought and this they're very an-
0: specialized too. It's a very niche. It's super interesting, very sophisticated area of the law. So it's effectively like a super fancy motion to strike. You don't bring it at like an MSJ phase. You bring it early on as kind of at the pleading hey, phase. Hey,
1: we're not teaching about anti-slap motions. Here. Okay. We're not... I'm just showing off how much I know about it. That's, But that's about it, right? That's about Aren't it. Aren't you very, glad I very know Very
0: superficial it? knowledge of So, But, of but the, things, the
1: yeah. real reason I brought this case yeah. up was because it was a law firm, and the facts of the case are that apparently they represented someone named Nahid um, who had retained him for a first-party insurance case, maybe a bad faith case. Um, sounds like the retention, according to the opinion, was in June of 2017. They got some money. They, they continue to represent her, and by November of 2017, she fired him, and after she fired him, the firm placed a lien for any further recovery and under the theory of quantum merit, and then within a few days of firing him, all of a sudden there starts to be uh, posts out there. Or a few days of placing the lien, I think, right? Either or. Yeah. And there starts to be posts out there um, slamming the law firm, They're saying things like they used a law, f- a law student to manage the case, they ignored requests for information. They withheld disbursements, improperly deducted expenses, yelled at the client. I think they then, a few days later, posted another one with another review on another source, and then a month or so later, they made a post that they were unethical and unprofessional group of attorneys, and they'll botch your homeowner's insurance claim. Um, and what the law firm did was they said it was the daughter. It was Nahid's daughter who was posting these
0: right and um then the the law firm filed a defamation lawsuit against uh against the daughter i believe
1: right Try, and immediately tried to do discovery but before they tried to do discovery the daughter's lawyers filed the anti-slap and under the anti-slap statute discovery stayed unless there's a specific order from the court while the motions pending yeah, and, and the, the trial court granted the anti-slap motion. And awarded $36,000 in fees and costs, which is another thing you should know about anti-slap, is that it has an attorney fee and cost provision to it, which can be quite expensive if you're wrong.
0: Yeah, so the, the – well, Brian said we're not going to talk about the standards for anti-slap, so I won't get into what the court looked at, but effectively the court here um, ruled that the, the – uh, Activity was protected. It's
1: uh, The burdens on the plaintiff, meaning the law firm in this case, to prove that there's a probability of success. You have to establish the success. And the court really focused on the fact that these were anonymous, that they thought it was the daughter. They couldn't specifically establish it was the daughter. I mean I think that's one of the reasons why you should add discovery so you at least could find out if it was the daughter. They were trying to – I think they served a subpoena on Google or one of the search engines to see if it was in fact the daughter. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And is Yelp a search engine? It's not a search engine. It's like a what review What is a search site. engine? Never mind. Never
0: so, mind. But I really put this case in It's like in 411,
1: here. but yeah. You know, in full disclosure, I know these lawyers. And I put this case in here because um, I think it's very important to think twice before doing and bringing something like this. There is protected speech out there. Truth is a defense. Do you want to go chasing after your clients when something like this happens? Do you want to make an issue of it? Um, it's, it's just one of those very tough calls and it isn't limited just to law firms. It can be restaurants, it can be businesses, it can be establishments. Um, there seems to be, you know, people hide behind the anonymity of the internet, but you know, that that's bad and good. Free speech is very good, but you know, sometimes you get stuff like this out there and it is troubling, but you've got to think twice before you start filing the list. Yeah,
0: I mean we've we've been presented with cases against sites like Yelp and things like that, who very well may game the system. In fact, I, there was um, there was a Daily Show episode recently about that, about how Yelp is kind of pay to play, and they make people give money b- before they can get rid of bad reviews, allegedly. Or, yeah, allegedly. Um, but again, again, they're protected, and maybe it's a price to pay for our freedom of speech. But they are ultimately protected. Hey,
1: I think it's a big issue. I think it's a big problem, and nobody, nobody would like to be on the receiving end of bad reviews or bad credits. So, doesn't please nobody listening to this take this as an invitation to say bad things about Sean on the internet? Okay, right. I'm going to start a whole petition to uh, you know get
0: you taken off the show. Um, based on you know your performance Can I people sign it? people's reviews and and people's complaints
1: so um, yeah. um, let's go to our last case last of the case, day yeah, garcia it, versus Mal- malia let's see How you're would having you a lot of that? trouble
0: today with the names garcia versus malila Manila. M-Y-L-L-Y-L-A. Um, this is out of the 2nd sec- Appellate District. All kidding aside, this is horrible a fact right- righteous case, a horrible fact pattern. Good work here by the Inner City Law Center that brought this action. Um, and uh, so you want to give us a rundown of what the facts are here, Brian?
1: Yeah, this is a horrific landlord-tenant case. These, this was a duplex. And before the show began, I taught Sean what a duplex is.
0: It's a building with three or
1: four units. Two. Two. Two two duplex Four? okay so two unit building okay. this is a two unit a two unit apartment building just two units but the landlord came along and turned those two units into 12
0: rented it as 12 separate units
1: 12 so. separate units only two of them had kitchens there were only two community bathrooms in the entire place because of that there was human waste that was thrown out of the building there was illegal electrical work there were cockroaches there were rats There were several months where the building had no power or water. The residents had to purchase buckets of water so that they could have something to drink. And at least one tenant had a cockroach removed from her ear.
0: Yeah. So So the, the jury was pissed off? jury was mad surprise surprise uh and awarded around 0 to 7000 dollars um rent abatement to each plaintiff 10, that's rent abatement, and rent abatement. economic yep. damages and then 10 to 15000 dollars of non-economic damages to each plaintiff emotional distress and then 95000 dollars in punitive damages to each plaintiff and right. what is what is punitive damages for Brian punitive
1: damages when you've engaged in fraud oppression or malice and malice is defined as despicable conduct yep. which is the kind of conduct that it's looked down upon by decent people everywhere. Decent people like you and me. Decent people like at least me. Okay. So, but here, the real import of the case and the reason I included this. Was what happened in the punitive damages phase of the case?
0: Yeah, so on appeal, the uh, defendant here, Malila, Malila, uh, whatever their name is, is landlord. arguing. The landlord is arguing that the punitive damages were excessive and that plaintiff failed to establish the defendant's or the landlord's net worth here. And the problem is that there's a, a whole set of cases, starting with Adams versus Murakami, and then another case called Korumbam versus Lampkin, that say that when a defendant does not provide evidence of his financial condition, even though he was ordered to or plaintiff made an effort to seek it and try to obtain it, then they can uh, they they can't argue that the plaintiff failed to prove up their
1: financial condition or net worth. Right. And and normally in these cases, that's the obligation of the plaintiff to prove the financial condition. But here, the defendant, the landlord stood in the way. And in fact, just a few examples of them thwarting discovery or ability to present the evidence is they disobeyed a court order to produce evidence. They refused to comply with a subpoena. They refused to produce financial documents. They were ordered to produce financial documents. The trial court discussed with the Uh, Both lawyers, the plans to proceed with the punitive damage phase and defense counsel said we won't be giving any financial documents. There was a notice to appear at trial with documents. They refused to comply with that. And so what I really like about this case is it's good to show what happens when the defendant is um, ordered to or required to produce this kind of documents doesn't produce them and can't stand there and say too bad plaintiff you didn't prove your your case so they went forward with the case they got ninety five thousand dollars for each and every one of these plaintiffs and then um, what happened is um, the 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 court said the court of appeals said that's sufficient you've met your burden you don't have to go any further than that normally your obligation to produce but in this case. Because they didn't give you the information, you don't have to produce it. And so what I liked about this case, Sean, uh, is two things. Not only did they find that there was substantial evidence to warrant punitive damages, duh, but then they said that the entire defense for why the punitive damages were excessive— Not warranted,
0: yeah. What was it? I think that's your favorite
1: line from all of this. It is. It's that he argued, I'm not a wealthy man. The landlord said, I'm not a wealthy person— in fact, I had to even sell my airplane to pay for the electricity that was off for two months. Right. Terrible. 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 People feel terrible for yeah, that. Yeah, terrible.
0: So that that's kind of the lesson here because oftentimes plaintiffs will have difficulty obtaining evidence of financial condition. What's ironic is in cases that warrant punitive damages, defendant will not give you the evidence you need to prove up the amount of punitive damages. But fear not. If you do your due diligence and go in and seek a court order and they disobey it, you'll be protected then. They won't argue – that you; they won't be able to argue that you haven't proved up their financial condition. So another great case here. Garcia, great case. And Lula. then
1: just the, the little icing on the cake was at the end – um, the defendant landlord tried to argue that the jury's verdict was the result of unfair prejudice. Of course, no, it's not unfair prejudice when people hate you for being a slumlord. Right.
0: Right. So,
1: great case. That's useful. Th- those uh, are all the cases today. we have today. That's good. That's it. That was, that was good. a hey, short you for episode. Listening. What should we
0: talk about now, Brian?
1: Nope. It's been plenty long. It's a little over twenty-five minutes. Well, let's let everybody. these people go. Let's let them let, go. Let, let let them let's them let the one or two that are move still on listening. With their life. Move yeah. Move on yeah. with their life. Or
0: or just go to bed. Um, take the headphones off and go to bed. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, I'm Sean Krenikian. That's Brian Cavatech And you can find us online at kbklawyers.com. Uh, we'd love to hear some feedback from you, uh, complaints, questions, whatever it may be. Just and, don't post them online. Yeah, don't post them online because we, we can't sue you over that. That's, that's a problem. Um, yeah, we'd love
1: to hear from you. And thanks for tuning in, really. Next time.